Let's open up God's word to Mark chapter 13. We've been marching through Mark, going passage by passage. And for those of you who heard me give my little rendition about how Thanksgiving um, is just halftime of the Christmas season, the Christmas season starts November 1st, some of you may not have been on board, but now we're in Advent, so welcome. I'm glad to see that you are in the Christmas season. It is officially started. Now, with that said, we are going to be doing an Advent series. Today, we're in Mark. Lord willing, next week, and then the following uh, four weeks after this week, we'll be doing an Advent series on the songs of the Nativity. So we see these four different songs in the book of Luke, in Luke 1 as well as Luke 2. And we'll be going over the Magnificat, the Benedictus, the Gloria in Excelsis, and the Nunc Dimittis. And if you are not sure what those mean, then I would encourage you to be at those sermons so that we can get a better understanding of the significance of these songs of the Nativity. But we're in Mark chapter 13 today, and we just finished Mark chapter 12. That was a long chapter. We spent almost two months in the chapter of Mark 12. There's a lot there. Uh, But before we even jump into Mark chapter 13, how many in here are familiar with the show Survivor? Okay, it's been around for 20 years, so hopefully you've heard of it at least once. They are entering, or they're in their 41st season. But for those who may not be aware, Survivor is a group of castaways that inhabit an island. They are forced to compete against each other in a series of challenges. And the final person standing is the Survivor, and they win the cash prize of a million dollars. Now, with these challenges, some of them are challenges of strength, some of them are challenges of endurance, some of them are challenges of intellect. One of the challenges, so I watched this for the first couple years that it was out, and then I grew bored with it, but there's like a whole following of, of this show. It's still going pretty strong. But one of the challenges involved each tribe member standing on a wooden pillar in the water. This is a challenge of endurance. They had to stand on this wooden pillar. And randomly, Jeff, the host, would tempt the participants to jump off of this pillar by offering them food. So they've been out on this island. They have to find their own food. And so he may come out with a jar of peanut butter and say, hey, whoever jumps off can have this jar of peanut butter. Hey, here's two pizzas. Anybody wants to jump off, here are two pizzas. And the last person standing wins immunity. So that means that they are safe from being voted off the island for that round. Now, I share that with you because the Christian life has some similarities in that we are consistently and constantly tempted to stop standing for Christ. We see this throughout society. We see this throughout culture. There's temptations. There's desires of the flesh. There's evil in the world. We see natural disasters. We see suffering that we experience that make us question whether or not we should be serving this all-powerful God, suffering that other people experience. And so the question is, how can we stand when faced with wave after wave of temptation? Although trials and temptations are coming, as we we see in this passage, Although these trials and temptations are coming, we need to have a good framework for what it looks like to continue to stand. And I would submit to you that the way that we do this is by reminding ourselves that Christ is returning. 
that because Christ is coming again, we can and we must endure persecution. Because Christ is coming again, we can and must endure persecution. And in this text, we see Jesus laying out for us four ways to endure that persecution. You can find those four in your bulletin. I've laid them out for you. But by means of a little bit of background, as I said, we have been going through Mark. We've said the consistent theme has been God restoring his wayward people back to himself. And we've said that, he is, that Jesus now, as we read through uh, the last portions of Mark, that we're in Holy Week. Holy Week being the final week leading up to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He'll be put on a cross and die on Friday. He will go into the grave. He'll continue to be in the grave on Saturday. And on Sunday, he will raise victoriously over death. But we're on Wednesday. And Wednesday has been a very busy day. So just for some recap, in the morning, we saw the withered fig tree that Jesus cursed. We also saw Jesus questioned multiple times by the Sanhedrin. And as a reminder, the Sanhedrin are a group of 70 religious leaders plus the high priest. We also saw Jesus explain what true religion is. That we would love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that we would love others like ourselves. And if we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then the natural overflow would be that we love others like ourselves. Because we love this God who loved us as himself. We also see Jesus stump the Sanhedrin with just one question in verses 35 through 37. He says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David coming before the Christ, that David calls him master. So we see Jesus teaching and elaborating on the divinity of Christ. We also see that Jesus warns his listeners of the scribes, the religious leaders who were taking advantage of the people of God. They were using God's people for their own gain. We see in stark contrast, Jesus himself, the true religious leader, giving of himself for the gain of his people. We see the scribes using the people for their gain. We see Jesus giving of himself for our gain. And then last week, Michael did a great job of teaching on the widow's giving. And now today, we see Jesus preparing his disciples to suffer well by letting them know what is to come. And so he provides four ways to faithfully endure despite what is coming. We see those in your bulletin. They are don't be led astray, don't be alarmed, be on guard, and be aware. So we will look through each of those. Um, but before we do, let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to guide our time together. Father, thank you for the gift to gather. We ask that you would be magnified, that Christ would be preached, that you would help us to better understand this passage, and that in better understanding this passage, we'd better understand the, the whole story of Scripture, the whole gospel story, the plan of redemption that you have provided. We ask that you would use this passage to strengthen us as persecution and trials await. And Lord, we are grateful for this community, for those that you have knit together here to remind one another of the gospel, 
to proclaim the gospel to each other and to our neighbors. Thank you for the fruit you've allowed us to see this past nearly a year. Lord, we pray also for other churches doing very similar things. Think of Maranatha Community Church in Pickerington. Thank you for their faithfulness to proclaim the gospel. Thank you for the fruit that they have seen. Pray that you would continue to provide them with fruit. And as they look for a larger location to meet, we pray that you would meet their needs. Physically, with the space, and also financially, that they would be able to afford it. Lord, we pray also for Grace Fellowship Church just right down the road. Thank you for, despite all the trials they've gone through, for sustaining them. We ask that you would continue to sustain them, that you would continue to allow disciples to be made, and Christ to be proclaimed there. Now, God, we pray that as we look at this passage, you would give us eyes to see. Holy Spirit, we need you to open our eyes, to open our ears, to soften our hearts. We ask you to do this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are in Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And the first four verses are really just going to set the scene for what Jesus is getting ready to teach on. And so the first bit of that is them coming out of the temple. And so Michael did a great job describing the, the magnitude of the temple and how it was the center of worship and national identity for Israel. It's where sacrifices were made. It's where the presence of God was believed to be, particularly in the Holy of Holies. It's where um, David wanted, it's the thing that David wanted to build, but his son Solomon was the one who ultimately built it, and he built it, finished building it in 957 B.C., so just shy of a thousand years before Christ came. And then it was destroyed by the Babylonians about 400 years later, 586 or 587 B.C., and then it was rebuilt about 60 years, 70 years after that in 515 now, the second temple was smaller than the first one. However, Herod in 18 BC began to change that. And so he began to renovate and to rebuild this temple. And this temple became massive. And it was eventually two times the size of the original Solomon's temple. And one of the stones, just for sake of of giving you a, a better idea as to how massive this thing was. One of the stones was, they found in that area, a stone that weighed over 570 tons. And for those of you who aren't quick with math, that's over 1 million pounds is how massive this stone was. So this temple was a sight to behold. And this temple, um, as Michael pointed out, could hold roughly 50 football fields in the temple court. So huge, huge, massive structure that's in the center of this city, Jerusalem. Now, they come out, and the disciples are mesmerized by it. They point to it and say, Jesus, look at the massive stones. And Jesus predicts, he prophesies in verse 2, that, that the temple will eventually be torn down, stone by stone, which is, actually takes place and is fulfilled in A.D. 70. So just about 37 years after Jesus' ministry, after he says this, this prophecy of this massive temple actually does come true, and it is torn down. But the disciples in this moment don't know that. The disciples see this temple. They don't know it's coming 37 years later. And so they're pointing out to Jesus, do you see these great buildings? This is what Jesus is saying to them. You see these great buildings right after they said, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. 
So the disciples were absolutely mesmerized by this massive structure. To them, for it to be torn down, as Jesus says, for it to be torn down would almost be a sign of the end of the world because of how big this thing is. To them, the idea of this structure being brought down is so cataclysmic that they would think that it would be essentially the end of the world for something to bring that down. And so naturally, when Jesus says, I'm telling you, each of these stones could be torn down. They want to know, okay, when, when's this going to happen? When's this going to take place? And so Jesus, in verses 5 through 13, begins to share with them some signs. Now these signs are false signs of the end of the age. They do not indicate the end of the age, as Jesus says in these passages. And then in verses 14 through 23, he provides some true signs of the end of the age. So before we even get start in verse 5, I'd like to point out how easily the disciples, Jesus' followers, were distracted by what man can make. And for us this morning, we should ask ourselves, what are the things that take our eyes off of Jesus? Jesus has been doing three years of ministry at this point with the disciples. He's just befuddled the Sanhedrin multiple times. And we see this withered fig tree that Jesus pointed out. He cursed it the day before, and the next day it's totally withered. Jesus has made it very clear through his various miracles, through his teaching, that he is God in the flesh. And these disciples, after Jesus is now leaving the temple, they're not mesmerized with Jesus. They're mesmerized with the temple, with what man can build. And so this morning, what takes your eyes off of Christ? Is it status? Maybe it's money, maybe it's career, maybe it's family, maybe it's social media. What is it? What tends to take your eyes off of the king? Because whatever takes your eyes off of Christ will, in fact, hinder you from enduring, will hinder you from standing for Christ. So it's helpful to know what that thing is in your life doesn't mean that you've been defeated by it and that you're surrendering to it, but it's good to know what you're up against, what it is that tends to take your eyes off of Christ. With families in the room, what what takes your eyes off of Christ? It's so easy to get consumed in the daily minutiae of family life. What is it that distracts your family from our Savior? Maybe you're in the room, you're not a Christian. Good question to, for you to ask is what motivates you? Why do you get up in the morning? Why do you work hard? Why do you have the friends that you have? Why do you do the things that you do? What motivates you? Because that thing is very likely the thing that is keeping your eyes from Jesus. For those that are in pain this morning, I'd like to remind you, that God will use this season and intends to use this season to bring you closer to Him, not to push you further away. There are aspects of God that you would never otherwise see, never otherwise enjoy if He did not take you through a season of suffering. So the season of suffering is for your good, but don't let the season of suffering be used to take your eyes off of Christ encouraging chapter, we won't read it, but encouraging chapter to be reminded of that is 2 Corinthians 1. I encourage you after church, if you consider yourself as someone who is hurting, read 2 Corinthians 1. 
In church, for us, there will be plenty of distractions, plenty of good things that could take our eyes off of Christ. But let's endure by staying fixated on Him, by reminding each other to consistently look to Him. Let's never, never grow bored of the gospel. That every Sunday, Lord willing, every Sunday, the gospel will be proclaimed here. That's what we have to be about. There's all kinds of other good and wonderful things. But nothing as good and as wonderful as the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we must be about that every time we gather. And so that's just setting the scene for the four ways that Jesus provides for his people to endure. The first one we see in verses 5 through 6 where Jesus says, Do not see that no one leads you astray. So we see that first point, don't be led astray. So when Jesus leaves the temple, he now goes to the Mount of Olives. So maybe some of you have heard of the Olivet Discourse. That's happening right now. It's Jesus' teaching, his discourse at the Mount of Olives, Olivet. Okay, so when Jesus begins this teaching, and it goes on for some time, but it says Olivet Discourse. And so he gives some things for people, for his people to be aware of. In verse 5, he says, see that no one leads you astray. How easily we are led astray by various things. But one way to spot a false savior, because there will be all kinds of false saviors, all kinds of people who come and say, I am the way, I know the truth, is by knowing the true savior. Many of you have probably heard the example of those who study um, money. The way they spot a counterfeit is not because they've studied all the counterfeits, because they studied the real thing. They know what a $20 bill looks like. They know what a $100 bill looks like. And they know it so well that when there's a fake one presented, they're able to recognize very quickly that, oh, that's not, that's not the real thing. In the same way, we must know the real Savior, the true Savior, so well that when a fake one comes along, no matter how convincing, when they say, I know the truth, follow me, we're able to say, nope, that doesn't, that doesn't, doesn't work. doesn't compute. I know the true Savior. You're saying something contrary. So we must know Jesus. He says false saviors will lead others away from the true, true Savior. So we must know the true Savior better than anything else. In verse 6, he says, Many will come in my name saying, I am He. And they will lead many astray. When they say, I am He, they're essentially saying, I am the truth. I know the truth. Follow me. We saw individuals doing this shortly after Jesus' death. In the first and second century, there were individuals who rose up and said, I am Christ, I'm returning. And they led people astray. We saw this in the 19th century, Joseph Smith, who founded Mormonism. He said, God has spoken to me. I have the truth. He's entrusted it to me. Here it is. And the Latter-day Saint movement was birthed. We've seen this with cult leaders like Charles Manson, David Koresh, and Jim Jones. There are those with charismatic personalities. There are those with convincing arguments. There are those whose arguments may make logical sense. But if you don't find it in Scripture, then you cannot embrace it. The world has its own wisdom. At the men's retreat last weekend, we talked about wisdom. What is wisdom? How do we pursue wisdom? How do we acquire it? We must be in the Word the world has its wisdom. It has convincing arguments. 
but ultimately we should not be afraid of truth if we serve the God of truth. And so take those arguments, take those ideologies, and test them. Test them against what God says. There are organizations that say, I am the truth. Colleges and universities, and look, I'm not, I'm not against higher education. Okay, I've gone to higher education, I've gotten some degrees, and Lord willing, I'll be able to get more education down the road. I want to continue to learn, but he, here's the thing. Every organization has a worldview. Everyone. Corporations, higher education institutes, news organizations, religious institutions, social media, governments, they all have a worldview, and they're all trying to convince you of their own worldview. No one enters the marketplace of ideas from a vacuum. They're all bringing a history of experience and understanding. And every time an argument is presented before you, it's to convince you of that argument, whether it's explicit or implicit. So we must know who the truth is. We must be aware of the way that individuals and organizations alike will come along and say, I am the truth. Listen to what I have to say. Jesus says, many will come saying, I am he. I am the truth. And they will lead many astray. Let us not be led astray. These and many more will deceive many. And in order to avoid being led astray by false saviors, we must know the true Savior. We must not know of him in the way that you know of Abraham Lincoln, but you must know him. Not know of him. You must know him. Let's know our Savior. And the way we do that is by knowing what his word says. Be intentional in our reading. It's helpful, Christian, to read other books that stir your affections for Christ. We have a church library back there. They're short little books. If you don't know what book to read, check out some of those. You can borrow those for free. I encourage you, read books that help stir your affection for Christ. For the parents in the room, fathers, mothers, if you are led astray, then the chances of your kids being led astray are very high. You, not only for the sake of yourself, but for the sake of your children, must know the truth. Those who are in the room who are not Christians, always try to address non-Christians because we're happy that you're here. What is your worldview? It's not a, a Christian worldview. What is your worldview? Follow-up question to that is, are you willing to stake your life on it? Are you willing to stake your eternity on your worldview? If you're not sure, then I would love to talk with you after the service. Please come up and say, hey, talk with somebody here. We would love to have a conversation with you about what a Christian worldview looks like. Mentioned those who were hurting earlier. As you go through the season of pain, there will be people who try to capitalize on your pain. We live in a fallen world. We've seen this. There will be people who will come along to you and say, let me make sense of what's happening. I know the truth. Don't take your pain to them. Take your pain to Christ. And take your pain to those who are in Christ, your brothers and sisters around you. Be willing to be open and transparent and honest with what pains you. Take your pain to Jesus. One of the primary ways you do that is in prayer. Another primary way is by sharing it with those who are in your church family. 
It's by talking. You don't have to hide your pain. We're, we're a body of broken people. Be concerning if we never had any pain. So take your pain to one another. And then church, we cannot be led astray by the various movements that are in our culture. We can't be a church that capitalizes on social movements. It's not that we're against good things, but that can't be the primary thing. The primary thing, as you said earlier, must be the gospel. We must consistently be proclaiming the gospel. So that's the first one. Don't be led astray. And now Jesus gives his second one. Don't be alarmed. So you see in the beginning, verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. So Jesus tells his people, don't be led astray, but also don't panic. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. This has happened since the beginning of time. That nations will rise against nations and kingdoms will rise against kingdoms. There will be natural disasters. He lists earthquakes. He lists famines. Some of you remember in 2011 the earthquake that hit off of the the coast of Japan and absolutely decimated a people. Over 20,000 people were killed. Many people at that time were saying the end is near. Jesus has a word for us here. These things must take place. See that in verse 7. But the end is not yet. These things will take place. This is what it means to live in a fallen world. So there will be natural disasters. There will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. There will be kingdoms rising against kingdoms and nations against nations. These things are promised. Don't be surprised by them. And they're not the end. But Jesus says they're the beginning. The beginning of birth pains. I have seen child labor twice now. And I will confirm with everyone here that it's not a super pleasant experience and the one giving birth is not super comfortable. There's some pain. And it's also unpredictable. Our first, Finley, naturally, was a more difficult labor. It was nearly 24 hours. Lennon was less than 12. We had no idea. Danielle went into labor. She was induced and said, okay, contractions are happening. Here we go. And I, I usually ask the nurses, so, so how long do you really think this is going to be? Like, can, I, can I sleep for a few hours? Or what, what should I expect here? And they're always like, we don't know. Like, they give a ballpark, but they don't know when birth will happen. In the same way, these things, they don't indicate the end, but they are signs that it is coming. There's a distinction there. Okay, it doesn't mean that because there was a tsunami in 2011 that within the next 10 years that Jesus is going to return. However, these things validate what Jesus has said. They validate the church. James Edwards, in his commentary, says that the metaphor of birth pains is also instructive. For in Judaism, motherhood was the ultimate validation of a woman's worth, and birth pains ended the disgrace of childlessness. Likewise, the church's birth pains in tribulation, will validate rather than annihilate its existence. So the things that are going on, that we see going on, whether it be famines or earthquakes or tsunamis or wars or rumors of wars, these things do not threaten the church, but they validate it. 
that what Jesus said is, in fact, true. And so followers of Jesus don't need to be alarmed when these things go on. But the reason they don't need to be alarmed is because their victory is sure. Yes, by all means, care about what goes on in the world. We, we don't want to be a people that stick our head in the sand and are only about what's happening right here. We, we want to be faithful citizens of the world that we live in, but we also want to be faithful citizens of the coming kingdom. We want to rest our hope in Christ, knowing that our victory is sure. So do not be alarmed when the world, with wars and rumors of wars, when the world lives like those without hope, because they do not have Christ. But we must take this hope, we must take it to them. So Christian, have a calm and steady confidence. When things seem chaotic in the world, one of the greatest witnesses to the world is that we have a calm and steady confidence. And this will look strange to those who are not in Christ. However, even though it looks strange to the world, we can point them to the one who has overcome the world. John 16, Jesus says, In me you may have peace. In me you may have peace. You may have a calm and steady confidence. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's have a calm and steady confidence as things in the world continue to rage on. Men, lead your family into this calm and steady confidence. They're looking to you. Be firm leaders, do not lead by fear. Church, false saviors will live I want to say that they not only live, but they breathe and feed and find their nourishment on our fear. And so let's not perpetuate that. Let's not entertain that. Let's not be alarmed. But let's have a steady confidence. So those first two, do not be led astray, do not be alarmed, those are called negative commands. Do not fill in the blank. Do not now Jesus gives two positive commands. Do this. And so the first one is be on guard. So we saw Jesus say, do not be led astray. Do not be alarmed. And now he says, be on guard. See this in verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. So Jesus is saying, be on guard. He's saying, don't be caught off guard. Catch someone off guard, they're surprised. They weren't expecting it. Don't be unprepared. Jesus says, I'm telling you these things so that you may have peace. Christ followers throughout history, as we see there, them being delivered to councils and being beaten. Christ followers throughout history have been delivered to courts. They've been harmed by religious leaders. And they've had to stand before secular leaders. Notice there, Jesus says, councils, synagogues, governors, and kings. See the courts, we see religious leaders, and we see secular leaders. But it's all for the name of Christ. He says, for my sake. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake. Focus in on those three words, for my sake. The way that the gospel goes forward is through the persecution of God's people. They're brought before courts. Why are you here? 
because I'm a follower of Christ. Here's what it means for me to be a follower of Christ. This is why I can't do certain things or I do certain things. And so by doing that, the gospel's proclaimed to the courts. And then they're brought before synagogues. Why are you not submitting to the religious rules that the synagogue has? Well, it's because I'm in Christ. Here's what it means to be in Christ. And the gospel goes forward there. And the same thing with rulers and governors and kings. They're, they claim the gospel to the governors and the kings. They're brought before them for Christ's sake. And in our suffering, in our persecution, being brought before these various institutions, the gospel goes forward. Jesus makes that point in the very next verse, verse 10. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. So we're brought before these organizations, these individuals. We're called to share Christ. And as the gospel is proclaimed, as Christ is proclaimed, disciples are made. Now others are offended, but disciples are made. The Puritans used to say that the the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. The same gospel that makes disciples offends those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel saves and the gospel offends. Those that it offends will bring Christians before courts, religious leaders, secular leaders, and these Christians are brought before each of those individuals and organizations for the sake of proclaiming the gospel, for the sake of bearing witness before them, as we see at the end of verse 9 there. So God uses his people's suffering to magnify his name, to magnify the gospel message. And in the magnification of the gospel message, more disciples are made. But there's also more offense. So offensive, in fact, that if you look at verse 12, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. This gospel, as God's people are brought before these leaders, and they proclaim the gospel, and the gospel message is magnified, it becomes so offensive that family units will see it better, see a better fit for their brother or their child or their parent to be put to death than for them to follow Christ. And Jesus is warning his disciples, this is coming. It's not the end. It's what Christians should expect. But it's coming. So Jesus is saying, don't be caught off guard. He says, be on your guard. So, Christian, are you on guard this morning? Don't be caught napping. Be prepared to suffer and to suffer well. I don't want this whole sermon to be a doom and gloom, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket type message. But we must look at the text. And Jesus is saying that this this idea of the Christian going through life not tasting any kind of suffering is foreign to the history of the church. Don't be caught off guard. Many will try to sway you. Families, this is a a great plug for all the more reason to have family worship and a time of family devotions where you can get your kids around the table and just read a short passage of scripture. Sing a song if you want to sing a song. I I was just telling Danielle uh, earlier this week or last week that we need to improve on this. (laughs) 
our family needs to be better at that. And that, and that comes from me. Like, I, I need to be better at that. So families, take time to put up your guard, to strengthen your family. And then also the, the last thing that Jesus points out. So he says, don't be led astray. He says, don't be alarmed. Don't panic. He says, be on guard. And the last thing, verse 13, he makes the point of being aware. He says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So we cannot live unaware of these things. Jesus shares these things with his disciples so that they may know what is to come and also know that that's not the sign of the end of the age, that this is regular Christian life. Knowing these things are promised will help equip us to endure when they arrive. James Edwards says that the life of faith is not an exemption from adversity, but a reliance on the promise of God to bear witness to the gospel in adversity and to be saved for eternal life through it. I'm going to read that one more time. The life of faith is not an exemption from adversity, but a reliance on the promise of God to bear witness to the gospel in adversity. Because Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead, we can and we must endure persecution. Jonathan Edwards said that almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. Every natural man that hears of God's coming judgment flatters himself that he shall escape it. Oh, I'm not that bad. I, I'm not, I'm not going to be on the bad side of God's judgment. I'm a decent person. But let me encourage you this morning that the only way that we will stand, the only way that we will endure to the end is if we throw ourselves onto Christ, the one who stood on our behalf, the one who was able to persevere, that in the garden when he was sweating droplets of blood, he endured, he continued forward despite the temptations that were given him by Satan. We just sang, Lord, I need you. And one of the verses say, And when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. The only way that we will endure to the end is if we throw ourselves onto Christ. Christ, who was not led astray when tempted by Satan in the desert and by Satan in the garden. Christ, who was not alarmed when he was betrayed by Judas. Christ, who was on guard when delivered over and was ready to witness before the world's leaders. And Christ, who was aware of the assignment before him when he was sent by the Father. The only way that we'll be able to do these four things that he says is if we throw ourselves onto him and rely on him to endure to the end. Throw yourself this morning onto the one who endured the punishment for the sins of his people. Depend entirely on Christ for your endurance. Depend on the one who is coming back to bring his people into his kingdom after all these things are said and done. Depend on Christ this morning. The only way we will endure is if we throw ourselves on the one who endured on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, 
come before you grateful for your kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Grateful for this plan of salvation that has been provided in him and through him. Jesus, thank you for enduring on our behalf. Thank you for not being led astray. Thank you for not panicking. Thank you for being on guard and thank you for being aware of all that was before you in coming to earth and condescending to man so that we may be saved through your perfect righteousness and through your sacrificial death on the cross. Thank you for rising in victory. We rejoice in that. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.